Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast. And today my guest Chris Lee is a lawyer who has spent the last three years defending police officers or police departments against lawsuits from citizens. And being that he is in that realm, he has a lot of insights and a lot of just informative things that I found very interesting. And I learned a lot during this conversation. And given the current climate and all the things happening, we get into police brutality and and things like that. And I even have a moment of kind of recognizing my own biases and privileges throughout this conversation. So thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast. And we have a very special guest today with a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, So to introduce our guest, uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Christopher Lee Esquire. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's technically technically by title, I guess. So, mm-hmm. thanks for having me. Yeah, David. of course. Um, I, I've I've known you for such a long time. It's crazy to me that you are a lawyer now. If I'm being very honest, because um, I've known you since I think before you were in high school, even. Um, so it's it's great to be able to uh, record this with you, and it's so timely because the law that you specialize in or at least kind of what you've been doing for the last three years it's very pertinent to kind of what's happening right now right so do you, do you mind kind of getting into a brief introduction of like who you are what you do and you know the type of law you've been practicing for the last three years sure i mean as david as you introduced me I'm, my name is chris i um I've, David, I think I've known you since, uh, at least since I was in middle school. I recall, yeah. you know, you used to give me rides when I when I couldn't couldn't drive much. Um, but I've always uh, appreciated your um, taking, looking out for me, and when I, when I got to Northview, you showed me around a little bit, and so I appreciate all that. But um, so yeah, I've known you since at least sixth grade. Um, went to the same high school together, then. I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer since I was probably in, I would say probably at least the seventh or eighth grade or so. I, I recall writing about it in, in, um, in one of my blogs, which I will not, which I will not keep show to anybody. Um, <laughs> but just kind of stuck with it. My mom always said I was really good at arguing with her. Uh, something very trivial and small like that can develop and turn into a lifelong career. Um, so thanks, mom. Um, but yeah, I, uh, studied law at the Emory university, got my degree from Emory. It's a pretty difficult time in my life. I'll say <laughs> uh, the bar mm-hmm. exam was not fun, but I mean, yeah, if there's anyone out there who wants to know more about how, what that's like and the process behind it, um, I'm happy to help out whoever. So, um, yeah, I started out my career, not doing civil rights law. I did. Um, I was, I was certain I wanted to do criminal law. So I, I worked at the district attorney's office for DeKalb County while I was in law school. I had a job offer to work for the solicitor's office, um, after I graduated. So I would have been doing prosecuting people, prosecuting misdemeanors, things like that, uh, with the hopes mm-hmm. of moving up to the district attorney's office. Um, but for, for one reason or not, I didn't, I decided not to do it instead while I was in law school, I was working both at the district attorney's office, um, but also working at a small firm that handled criminal defense on the, um, which is the other side of the, the spectrum. So I was mm-hmm. helping, I, I did, I did that type of work. I also did uh, family law while I was there, which is like, um, helping people in times of need when they are, um, fighting for custody of their kids, um, or, you know, when, when people get divorced, there's a lot of legal proceedings that, that goes, that are required as part of that. But we also did some, we also did some personal injury work at the firm as well. Um, so I was there for a little bit. Um, I didn't necessarily like the work I was doing. I wanted to do something a little bit more, uh, a little more meaningful, I guess. I stumbled my way into working in government law. So that's what I've been doing for really the majority of my legal career, which is 
defending cities and governments when they get sued. Um, mm. And most times the city or government gets sued, it's because um, by extension of its sheriff's office or police department, there's been something that's happened with the uh, police officer, sheriff's deputy involved um, that has given rise to a lawsuit. So, you know, they will... So. Sorry, can I ask a question real quick? So for, for people who might not be super familiar, um, the DA obviously stands for the district attorney, but the DA is responsible for making the case f on behalf of the state, right? So is that correct? If someone commits a crime, the DA is basically defending the law in, in, in court, right? So they are an extension of the state. So they what they're tasked to do is the police officer will do the investigation, initial investigation. The police officer is in charge of generally getting the warrant and pursuing the initial charges. And then they take their initial investigation and their, the, the case, and then they bring it to, to us, the district attorney's office. Um, mm -hmm. And then so there's the district attorney, which is an elected official, and there's a bunch of assistant district attorneys who generally handle the, the, the investigation from that point forward. And it's their job to um, determine the charges and then see them all the way through uh, up until trial, whether... And, and it's also the district attorney's responsibility to prove that a crime was committed. Is that right? Yes, with the beyond a reasonable doubt. It's, it's their, it would be their job to, to prove that to an impartial jury. Uh, to, gotcha. to, to, you know, summarize it in a, in a sentence. Yeah. So, and in, in your work with criminal defense, you are on the opposite side of the courtroom where when someone is charged of a crime, you're defending them to say this person did not commit this crime, right? Yeah. So I did that for about a year. So given my experience with having worked on both sides, I knew intimately well how the district attorney's office worked. I knew the way that they looked at cases i knew you know how they would think and how they would pursue a case and generally what sentences they would give for certain things and and, and areas to look at so i did that for a little bit um at the at that small firm i, I was working for and so i handled a you know a number of things i got i have a few i have a few cases i'm proud of and things and i was able to get some people i knew uh, knew some people I know and some friends out of some really sticky situations that I didn't think I was going to be able to. Um, wow. But somehow, you know, a lot of it's just determination and being creative and, and, and just not, and just, you know, just working hard at it. Um, because a lot of times this is, it's a business, man. The legal profession's a business. A lot of times if you, if you get a lawyer who, who doesn't really care about you, no, I mean, just to put bluntly, they are just going to treat you like anybody else and, and do the general process of, of helping you get through whatever charge you're facing. But I mean, if it's my friend, you know, I will, you know, move a mountain to try to get them out of the situation because I know the effect it's going to have on them. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, there was a few times where I would be a few moments I can look back on my in that short part of my career where I'm, I'm pretty happy about how it went. Um, hmm. But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm fairly knowledgeable about the criminal law side of things, even though now I'm, I'm doing civil law. Right. So and what you're doing now, if, if I understood correctly, is when when we see on TV, you know, people say, oh, we're going to sue the police department, things like that. When that does happen, it's your job to defend the police officer slash department, right? Uh. Yes, pretty much. Uh, more technically, I, it's my job to defend the city. And the city hires the, or is by extension, the, the police department is part of the city, um, because ultimately, right. when you sue a police officer, the city is going to be the one paying for it. Hmm. And I think it's this conversation we're having is so timely because um, what we're seeing on the news. Obviously, there are a lot of protests happening, and um, there is generally. I guess negative view, a negative image that the police of, the police department as a whole is has right now. Uh, after you know what happened to George Floyd, um, there are a lot of people angry with the police departments all across the country, and 
there there's a lot of conversations about police brutality and things like that. So I, I think your perspective on the matter is going to be very interesting to hear because uh, how, how many police officers or you know cities or departments or whatever you want to call it do you think you've defended during your time? Um, probably a ballpark of somewhere between. 70 to 90 officers that and probably um, at least 15 different cities and counties. Wow. So these cities and counties, are they just in the metro Atlanta area? Yeah, they're all. Uh, no, I, I, I've represented some out of state as well because their conduct was tied to um, some stuff here in Atlanta. Uh, I, I was oh. just in Tennessee defending some Tennessee officers um, last week or two weeks ago um, mm-hmm. in a case where officer misidentified somebody, uh, arrested the wrong person, and that person spent 17 days in jail. So obviously they weren't happy about it. And so they, they sued the um, our officer for, you know, not being as diligent as he should and making sure this was the right guy. Hmm. So can, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the reasons why a police officer would get sued and kind of your, your just kind of general feeling of, obviously you can't speak on behalf of every police officer, but at least from the ones you've defended, can you give us kind of a, a, a general reading of, whether or not they truly deserve to be sued or it's frivolous legalities. Um, yeah. Can you speak on that a little bit? Sure. I'll, I'll start first with my commentary on this George Floyd incident. So yeah. there are a lot of times when the use of force is questionable. Um, a lot of times it can, get, it can get pretty questionable where it's not very clear. You know, because the officer might say, well, you don't understand. There was these circumstances and the and the person suing says, well, there's these circumstances. But with the George Floyd situation, anybody with half a brain can tell that that was not justified. It, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Right. I don't need to hire an expert mm-hmm. to to give an opinion about that. It's there's no defense. There, there's, it's indefensible is what we would call it. You look at it. The video is just purely indefensible. I mean, the police officers are trained from uh, when they're at the academy and their their yearly, their yearly certifications and things like that. To one of the things that they focus on is you do not put someone on their stomach, right? You just you just don't do that. Not only was that guy putting him on his stomach, he had his knee in his neck for what 10, 11 minutes. So I mean, even you look at that, it's just simply indefensible. So when you get situations like that. Right. I mean, I couldn't and I entirely agree with the the Minneapolis district attorney's office and upgrading those charges to second degree, um, second degree murder, because I mean, simply put, that's what it was. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, there there is there's training put in place. They, they get post certifications. They get um, they have to be yearly certified. They have to have X number of training hours for this and that over the years. But I mean, that's just simply a rogue officer who disregarded anything that he was told and just, you know, decided that he was going to kill that guy. I mean, it's really unexplainable. But, you know, from that is, in my world, not the norm. Um, For every one of those cases you get, you probably have 100,000 cases that don't look like that. Um, I mean, there. look, I mean, I think it's important for me to preface anything I say with the fact that the systematic racism that exists in the justice system is nothing to be, nothing to, to belittle or act like it's not there or to say, to, to, to belittle in any way, because it's, it's a problem, yeah. right? And so you, you see it all the time. Um, but I just, I think it goes to show you how much, um, how much the, the magnitude of the issue that we have here with the American justice system, because I'll say this, 
there's plenty of cases where the police, there, there's been incidents of police brutality that's simply un, you know, indefensible. But at the same time, I don't think people realize how many lawsuits there are involving um, officers where the conduct is not as clear as being outrageous, where it's a lot more, um, it's just, it's a lot more judgment calls and it's a lot more um, people just bringing things, lawsuits where, you know, they probably shouldn't bring a lawsuit. Um, mm. And so you get a lot of those, you know. I can't tell you how many times, because to bring a lawsuit that has merit to it, that's that's justified, you have to know what your rights are, right? So if you don't know what your rights are and you're suing, you know, without really knowing if you can recover for this, then, you know, you're you're probably not going to be happy, right? And at that point, it's a lose-lose situation because the, the city has lost money in defending the lawsuit and time. Um, the court systems get backed up. And no one walks away a winner. Um, hmm. So, can I ask, when a police officer is being sued like that, how does it work in terms of their on-duty responsibilities? Are they still on the job, or do they, you know, get on like administrative leave or or things like that? Well, it depends. Most of the time, they stay on the job unless they've done something that was so reprehensible that the department fired them, or they just. Um, they, they just, you know, left the department because they, in lieu of a termination. Um, but most yeah. times, like I said, out of a hundred cases I've worked, I'll work on 97 of them will probably be cases. I, actually, I wouldn't say 97. I'd, I'd probably say to be safe about nine out of 10 are cases where the, there's really not much merit to the lawsuit. And it's, um, it's a case that I either get dismissed on behalf of the officer or one that ends up in um, a, a, a jury saying we're not going to give them anything. Oh wow! So then, in in the cases where you have the the case just thrown out, uh, can you give us examples of some like reasoning behind why the civilian might have brought the charge or might have brought the case before the court? Sure. So. I think it's important for people to understand um, whether or not somebody, I guess the framework of how you can sue an officer. So in America, there's there's a principle known as official immunity at the state level and qualified immunity at the federal level. So basically, officers are given this shield of immunity. So you can't, you can sue anybody, really. I could sue Mickey Mouse if I wanted to. I could file a lawsuit in in any court and just name whoever, but to have a to have a legitimate lawsuit, you would have to have a case that pierces through their immunity to show something that their conduct was rises to the level that it would pierce their immunity. And so that's things that are like willfully willful conduct, malicious conduct, um, basically any kind of conduct where if you asked any reasonable police officer, would you have done this? they would say, of course I would not have done that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the immunity laws, they vary state by state, but here in Georgia, we have one of the the most expansive immunity laws in the country. So Georgia goes so far as to say, you have to, there has to be another case that exists out there that is exactly on point of the situation that is being presented and in that case, the court said it was wrong. If you don't get that, you probably can't sue. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm really shorthanding this, but can hmm. you think about yeah. how hard it is to sue an officer if the only time you can sue him, there has to be a court decision saying that these exact set of facts did not occur before? I mean, that is really tough. So, yeah. I mean, it works out in the favor of the... It works out in the favor of the officer most times. So I mean, I'm not tipping. I'm not. A, I'm not the world's best lawyer in the world or anything. But because that I have that in my back pocket, um, I can. Int- I can. You know, use that to show. You know, the law. The the officer is entitled to immunity. You can't sue him. You know, case closed. Go home. 
then I mean, what's what's your general feeling on that? Is is it a good thing that they have that level of immunity, or do you feel like that exacerbates, you know, systemic racism and police brutality? That's an issue that's been pushed a lot in the media these days. So, I mean, I, I've listened to CNN talk about it um, in the past week or so, where they're saying. We need to abolish immunity, and there's there's there is a, a bill that's been introduced in Congress that's saying end qualified immunity um, to allow it such that police officers can be sued and they don't have this shield anymore. Um, you know, I've been giving a lot of thought about it in the past few days or so, but I think it's important to one of the the cases, one of the. Um, the seminal cases that established qualified immunity was back in the 60s, which was Pearson versus, Pearson versus Ray. Um, I mean, this is a while ago. It's back when Thurgood Marshall was in the Supreme Court. He, the, the majority opinion had a, in establishing this, they, I'm, I'm probably butchering the quote, but it's something along the lines, something along the lines of a policeman's um, situation or his well-being shouldn't be so unhappy that he must choose between being charged with um, a dereliction of his duty if he doesn't arrest when he might have probable cause or being sued for damages if he does. So basically the court was saying the policemen have a difficult duty, right? If they're in this situation where they're thinking, if they have to think in the back of their mind, I have probable cause here, but if I don't go after this, I could... You know, if I but if I do go after this and it's not right, I could get sued. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it always puts them in this limbo where they don't know what to do, and ultimately that hurts the public because you know if if they see a situation where a guy's uh, about to commit a crime and they don't know whether or not they can act on it because they might get sued, that inhibits their ability to carry out their job and protect the public. Does that make sense? Right. Right. Um, so it's basically the officer without this immunity would have to consider. Do I do my job in protecting the public, or you no? Know, in doing that, do I risk getting sued and you know having financial or you know even jail time, right? Fin- yeah. Financial, uh, I guess, what is it called? Financial punishment. Yeah, or, or I mean, jail time, right? You gotta think. Like, I mean, fortunately for us in our jobs, we don't really have to worry about that too much. But imagine if if literally your day to day tasks put you in line of financial ruin every time you 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 worked right that's a mm. scary job can you think of how many how many people would want to be police officers police officers in that situation i mean it's hard enough finding police officers to, to join the force now um right but there is a big push for this um and you know the issue of qualified immunity goes back to the, the common law which is hundreds of years ago where it was, um, this is something that's been, you know, it's not new. It's something that's been around for a while. Um, but to abolish it, I don't necessarily advocate for abolishing it because people don't understand what that would look like. I do because I use it every day. And I'm telling you, it would be a, it would be a nightmare. It would be, um, and I can go into it if you want, want me to, but the, the, yeah, yeah. Okay, if sure. You, if you don't mind, could we get into kind of what the unseen ramification of that would be? Sure. So, say for instance, and I don't, I might be jaded and cynical from being a defense lawyer, but I'm telling you, most people that file lawsuits, they just file lawsuits because they're unhappy with whatever hit has happened that happened to them, right? I mean, for instance, I had a I had a lawsuit recently between a where a lady sued the officer because. Her roommate was was moving out um, of her house that she was subleasing or she was uh, she was the roommate was leasing a room from the homeowner. um, And then they were disputing. And basically, she's like, "Okay, look, I'm just going to leave. Right. And the police officer um, is called to the situation by the neighbors. The homeowner is throwing out all of her belongings on the street. Um, And you can't do that under landlord tenant laws. Right. I mean. You, you have to evict them formally uh, under the law. Mm. So this lady's like, look, okay, you want to leave? Then I'm going to just throw all your stuff out without any kind of notice. And, you know, you're going to have to just deal with it. And the officer was like, look, lady, you can't do that under the law um, because, 
um, you have to formally evict her, right? She has nowhere to stay, and you're going to throw out her and her kid like this. It's just, you can't do that. And he was being really nice with her about it. It's all on video. Um, and then she starts acting a scene, um, and she just gets really irate and starts throwing stuff, um, starts flailing her arms around, and it ends up um, hitting the officer in the face. At that point, um, he arrests her for disorderly conduct, and then she sues the officer for hmm. uh, wrongful arrest for soliciting legal advice that he didn't that he wasn't allowed to, um, you know, and things like that. So, you know, from between you and me, doesn't seem like he did anything wrong. I mean, he was trying to right. look out for the the lady that was you know had nowhere to stay and wouldn't have anywhere to sleep. Her and her child would have literally been on the street that night. Um, and so if qualified immunity is gone, that means that I don't have something to fall back on and say, look, the law bars the suit against an officer unless it's, it's something outrageous. If that's gone, the judge is more likely to say, okay, we'll let this go forward. And that means that a a jury of 10 people, or I'm sorry, a jury of 12 people are going to have to decide who of this person's, this person's, um, case right and i'm telling you juries are they're they're unreliable they're unpredictable and letting this go on is going to cost you know lawyers aren't cheap right the city has to pay a defense attorney to to defend them throughout the entirety of this thing instead of just getting it done after in the beginning this is going to drag out all the way through Um, that's more money for the the city has to pay that means the uh the officer has to deal with that lawsuit from beginning to the end which you know, it's, it's tough. They're going to have to go through all these hearings and stuff. It's going to tie up a lot of resources, too. Mm. Um, and ultimately, you're going to get a lot of people who shouldn't be getting money who are going to be getting money. Uh, because in the legal world, if, if a case isn't kicked out early, most times the person paying is just going to pay because they don't, have to pay, they don't want to pay defense costs of having the case drag on. Does that make sense? Um, and they don't right. want to worry about the potential risk of them losing at trial and then getting hit really big over the head. So they they just pay, even if they know they're not at fault. So that just means tons more of these claims where people are going to be getting paid for things that, you know, that, you know, didn't happen. For one other example, real quickly, is, you know, you get a lot of times in cases where this, the, the, the civilian who's involved in altercation starts the fight. I mean, they, they literally will put their hands on the officer first, and then they get... I mean, they get restrained, and in the restraining process, they get some damages. I mean, they might get, like, scrapes and bruises, but they're saying that, you know, because of that, they're forever traumatized. You're going to get a lot of cases where those people are going to get lots of money because of that, and I don't mm. think that's right. Yeah. So, ultimately, if, we, if they were to get rid of this, is it called qualified immunity? Yeah. Yeah, so if, if it does... If they do abolish a qualified immunity, I mean, we're going to be paying for it, right? The taxpayers are going to end up paying for all these new defense lawyers that are going to have to defend all these cases. And like you were saying, in most cases, if it drags on too long, they'll, they'll I, I believe the term is just settle yeah. by paying um, and just dismiss, getting the case dismissed, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I mean, putting it bluntly, it, it sounds like getting rid of this immunity. I, I'm sure there are some good good side effects, right? I'm sure there will be some good side effects where um, truly bad police officers will be, you know, held more accountable. But I think on the whole, like you were talking about, the frivolous cases far outweigh the true actual cases. Um, and so a lot of the resources are going to be tied up in the frivolous cases. Right? Yeah, I'll say one thing to the um, the budget that the cities have to pay for their legal expenses. I don't think people that it's not something insignificant. It's a lot of money. Um, mm. If this goes up, the only way that you're going to fund it is through tax dollars. Really, that's just the only mm. way it's going to come from. Um, so, I mean, it's just it's yeah. it's it's legitimate. I'll say one thing, though, in terms of, I do think it's important for me to say one thing, which is, I don't advocate abolishing it, but I do think it's gotten a bit out of hand, at least in Georgia and the 11th Circuit, which includes Georgia, Florida, 
Alabama and Tennessee. Which, and I'm not, not, mm. not Tennessee, I'm sorry. The other ones, yes. What, what, what I mean by that is that the 11th Circuit has taken the official immunity and has expanded it so broadly that it's become really hard to sue an officer. And I'll admit, admittedly, there's been situations where there's been questionable conduct and I've been able to get officers out on it scot-free um, because uh. of that. So I think it needs to be not – people like to just make things so black or white. It's not a matter of keep it, abolish it. It's, about, it's a matter of you know, limit it a bit, right? I mean, think go back to the original roots of it and try to not – to make it so expansive such that officers think that they can do whatever they want and not get sued. It's a balancing act really like anything else in life. Mm. And so I think it's – I, I would advocate – as someone who deals with this, and I've read so much on this topic, more than I'd care to read on. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I recently published a, a blog post on it for the firm um, about this specific issue. Um, but I do think it's a matter of, of tailoring it because you can't just get rid of this. It, it, would, be, it would be inherently unjust to do so. Mm. No, that that's actually that's a really good point. Uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you told us that because, yeah, I, I think it's important to know that there are uh, officers who might need to be sued, who might need to be taken, you know, held accountable for some things that they did. But if this is causing them to be just sheltered and not have to face that, then yeah, it's good for us to know that it needs to be adjusted. It needs to be uh, fixed, but uh, at the same time, knowing that if we were to get rid of it wholly, that that would also have negative ramifications. I think that's yeah, you're right. The balancing act. I think that's important to know. So, do, do you have any idea how likely you think that the abolishment of this uh, qualified uh, immunity is? Um. I don't, I'm not sure. There is a lot of people pushing for it. There's a lot, a lot of people lobbying for it. The fact that there, the Supreme Court um, granted cert on a case involving this is mm. very telling because to put in layman's terms, the Supreme Court gets 10,000 plus applications to review certain issues a year, right? And I mean, they're just a, they're, they're a small group of folks. Um, who have very limited time. This is one of the issues that they decided to look at. So um, they're gonna be looking at it. Um, And so I know we have a rather conservative court though. So I'm not sure Mm. how they will rule on it, but if I had to put my money on it, I think it stays. Um, If it doesn't and it's decided, it it would just be so so landmark, you know, that'd be the, such a landmark decision. I, I can't see that happening. Um, I can see it being limited in a sense, and I can also see um, there being some opinions that are instructive from the Supreme Court as to how they think that it should be interpreted, uh, which will be mm-hmm. useful in, in basically setting a new precedent saying, look, you can't, you can't go so far as to do that, this or that. Um, and so I think the, um, I think it'll be something like that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I have a question kind of related to this. Um, I don't know. Have you seen the video of the two students who were in the car in Atlanta getting, like, you know, tased and dragged out of their cars by the officers? Have, have you seen that? I have not. Okay. So there's a, a situation where it was past curfew and the two students were in a car uh, and, and the curfew was put in place because of the 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 protests you know started getting kind of violent okay uh, but the the video shows two students kind of they they claimed that they were not complying I, I don't know I didn't see that in the video so I'm not sure about that but they the officers ended up tasing them and dragging out of the dragging them out of the car and arresting them just on those facts 
do what do you think the chances of the police officers getting off on qualified immunity are? Well, first of all, the qualified immunity issue only refers to relates to civil damages, so it only that oh, that'll only uh. prohibit charges or only prohibit money damages. In terms of criminal charges, mm-hmm. that would be pressed against him from assault and battery. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's really tough, and the district attorney's office does not like to press charges against officers. Um, I did see that Paul Howard, which is the DA for Fulton County, did decide to push push char- push forward with charges against those officers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my re- in looking at history. Juries just don't like to convict officers. You know, you had you had the shooting in in Minnesota in 2012, right? Where it was pretty clear as day to me that that guy just shot him in cold blood. The jury was like, "Nope, we're not gonna we're not gonna convict him of that." He walked scot free. Um, what is this? What is this? I don't think I heard about this. Let me look it real quickly. It's the it was. It was a shooting that occurred in Minnesota um, where fairly certain it was in Minnesota. Uh, I, I, I can't recall off the top of my hand off the top of my head. I mean if I what? looked it up it would be it would be pretty easy to find. But I mean this this is not a you know, one time occurrence. You you get plenty of cases where the officer is is fairly the evidence is not in his favor, but the jury just doesn't want to convict him. Because, mm. let me put it this way, to, to get a conviction, criminal conviction, you need every single person in that room to be on the same page, right? If one person's like, nope, I don't think he did it, or I don't want to find him guilty, then it doesn't matter. The other 12, however many people are on that jury, it doesn't matter. He's not getting charged. It's called a hung jury. Mm. So, you need a unanimous jury verdict uh, for criminal charges. So... It happens a lot, you know. It just takes one person to be like, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to charge the officer for that. And so, right. more so than regular people, the officers just—it's really hard to charge them. So that's why the Minnesota District Attorney's Office initially um, wanted to go with third-degree murder charges because they wanted to find something that would absolutely stick. They don't want to give any kind of gray space to let that happen again, where the guy's going to walk scot-free. Does that make sense? Mm. So there's a lot of people thinking, well, why are they only pursuing third-degree murder charges? Because, I mean, they really got to make, more so than a, even a regular case, which is still you need to have a rock-solid case. When you're bringing charges against a police officer, it has to be pretty much bulletproof. Your, your, your char- the case you got to bring against them has to be almost unimpeachable because, I mean, history wow. has shown people don't like to convict police officers, even, in, even when they do bad stuff. Um, that's that's interesting so do you think because i i read that they upgraded it to second degree murder um is that because they believe public opinion is so clearly against this guy yeah but i mean you gotta think if this was not a police officer that would not that would be first degree murder i mean Mm. without question i mean i don't know minnesota law because it, it differs by state but generally, the difference between first degree and second degree has something to do with malice, right? Something to do with like premeditation and whether or not he calculated that he wanted to kill this guy and he did it anyways. Whereas generally, lesser degree, like second degree, is something a little bit less stringent and is more so he acted with, you know, reckless or something that led to that guy's death. All right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, okay, so um, kind of going back to the, the two students I was asking about sure the reason why i was that's kind of interesting to me is because the it's not that they weren't doing anything wrong right because they they were technically out on um and breaking curfew so i i wonder and and they and those police officers got fired and it the 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 chief of police i think today wrote like a letter to her police officer saying that she made the decision to get them fired um, somewhat politically. Um, there were political pressures that kind of got her to make that decision. So I just wanted to get an uh, opinion from you from the perspective of, of the law. Um, 
if you think it was justified that those police officers got fired or if you thought it wasn't justified firing? Um, you know, it's hard for me to make speculate without, you know, as a lawyer, we don't like to jump to conclusions without having all the evidence in front of us. But mm. if you, te- generally speaking, if you got a situation where there's kids past curfew, there's nothing else that aggravated the situation. I mean, I feel like there almost had to be something, but I mean, if there was nothing else and the police officer, the conversation gets a little heated and he tases them and pulls them out of the car, absolutely they should be fired. I mean, they should be charged mm. criminally for that. That's not okay. You know, that's, mm. they, they've taken constitutional oaths to protect the public. How are you protecting the public by doing that? Who are you serving? You know, like that doesn't help anybody. Oh yeah, that's no, that's that's good insight. Because in my mind, it's just um, th- these kids are outside. They're looking. I, I guess this is a bias from my own, like that I have to really look into and think about. But uh, it looked like from the optics of it that they were just students out looking for trouble, and you know. It, it looked like they were not compliant with the officer's demands to stop the car. They're, I think in the video, there's one moment where they, their officers are talking to him, but he tries to move his car forward. I don't know if it was because he lost his footing on the brake or not, or, or whatever the case may be. But, um, oh, that's that's interesting. Okay, so that's, that's good to know. So uh, you're saying that the, the use of taser and, and excessive force to that degree is, is not proper conduct probably i mean i like i said it's it's all very fact specific so you have to be very you got to look at it on a case-by-case basis and you know and and taking all the you know a lot of times you'll hear a lot of you don't have all the facts available to you when you look at a video um and so maybe there was something more you know maybe he saw a gun maybe you know i I don't know it's hard to tell yeah i i don't think i don't think that there was a gun or anything like that. You know, I think uh, I am because I am from a Asian American. I'm an Asian American and I, I come from Eastern culture. My mindset is if you do one thing wrong, then, you know, whatever punishment you get, you deserve. But oh, that's I've I learned something new about myself. Oh, <laughs> so, no, David, but, I, yeah. I, I, I struggle with that, too. I mean, I have that same type of mentality that's kind of engraved into me from a young age you know it's like you you almost condone the actions of the officer because of some sort of minor infraction that that the other person was doing you know like um because you know if you were in that situation you were probably told not to do anything to 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 do to do that but then that gives the that empowers the police officer to basically be act way outside the scope of what he was hired to do, you know, Mm. because I mean, if we just lay down to them, you have to, again, another balancing situation. If you just, if you just lay down to someone when they are, uh, when you don't have to, or like, you know, if you've done something little and then you, and just lay down to their authority all the time, I mean, they're just gonna, you're going to empower them even more. And you're going to think that they all have power over you. Um, and I will say, in, in doing this type of work, you see a lot of that because um, it's difficult being in a position where you really have the ability to take someone's freedom away and not help but feel like you have some authority, you know, when mm. the only authority you have is to protect the public. You don't, it doesn't make right. you above anybody else, but like, you know, it's hard. We're human beings. We all, we have this, we're imperfect. And so part of that is what, you know, unfortunately leads to a lot of these incidents is, you know, these police officers over the years become entitled. They feel like they have authority over people and it, you know, stuff like this happens, but you know, you, there's a, there's a lot, like I said, from the beginning, there's a lot, there's a lot of good cops. I don't like this. Being a good cop is probably the hardest thing is one of the hardest professions in the world. It's tough. I mean, you got to deal with that and be patient with them. And yeah, I have a lot of respect for, for law enforcement, if you can't tell. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually really, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. 
um, especially because of kind of what I talked about just before, um, like being able to bring to light and have an honest dialogue about you know some of the biases we might have, um, but also to be able to speak candidly about both sides. Um, I, I don't think it's an issue of you're either against police or you're against Black Lives Matter. Like, I, I don't think it's as simple as, you know, choosing a side one or the other. I think, like you're saying, there's many good cops out there. I know I know several cops personally who are like the nicest, best people. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of bad people. I mean, I'm sure there are people who under the guise of Black Lives Matter are going out there wreaking havoc. Right. Like like looters that we see on on TV, uh, opportunistic people who, who are doing things that, you know, are not productive and are counterproductive to what they're trying to do. So there's good and bad on both sides. And I'm so so I'm glad that we're able to t- have this conversation to kind of uh, get under the hood of the the part where, you know, some of the laws that hold uh, police officers accountable or you know the other way around some of the laws that protect officers that um, sh- maybe shouldn't be protected yeah I, I mean having having the experience that I do in this I'll say it's just way too easy to be a police officer to be honest I mean mm. you can you can just pick up I mean it's just really way too easy to be put in that that position of power, it's a powerful position. I mean, undoubtedly so. Um, if it were up to me, I would just increase the amount of training and requirements that um, it takes to be a police officer, and with an emphasis on the ethics and moral portion of it. There's not much training that goes into being a police officer in the ethics moral portion of it, or not enough, in my opinion. Um, and make sure that's a regular, ongoing thing. Um, and maybe make it a little bit more difficult to do that <laughs> because you get a lot of, uh, like I said, it's, it's a really powerful position, man. And, you know, you, yeah. I don't think it's fair to just have someone with, you know, and, and it's also the fact that they're really not paid much in a lot of these smaller jurisdictions and these rural places, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I was actually thinking about this too. And I was thinking that one of the ways that we could help end police brutality is by increasing pay and i know that sounds weird that kind of sounds counterintuitive but if their livelihoods is supplemented by other things because they're not getting paid that much then the amount of you know wanting like the desire to keep the job isn't that high then they might be out there kind of doing shady things but if you give them enough of an income where they they hold the title, you know, as their livelihood, I feel like things would change, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I th- which is funny because there's actually a big movement to defund the police. You'll see a lot of hashtag defund, 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 um, mm. which approaches the issue from a whole other angle, which says, you know, less law enforcement, more, and they advocate for the creative means to, to tackle societal problems, you know? Like, if the fear is that we take away from police leads to more crime, you know, how are we going to solve the crimes? Well, they, they combat the issue of why people are committing crimes themselves, which is hunger, which is, you know, low employment. And they try to think, you know, solve societal issues instead of trying to put a bandaid on it by having more police officers after the fact. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So they right. look at it from a preventative means more so than an actual, like, a responsive means. And at first, I, when I thought about that, I was like, huh. That's interesting. I don't know if I didn't think of it that way before, but I, mm. I think that's starting to gain some traction on me now. You know, I mean, I would be totally fine with um, making some budget cuts to the law enforcement department, but expanded expanded mental health, publicly funded mental health institutions, right? Where uh, because also part of the firm, what I do with my, with my firm is I serve as associate general counsel for a lot of government funded mental health institutions and mental health providers. And um, if these were people were given a little more funding, they could have, um, if, if a 911 call comes in, right? And there's a, there's a person who clearly has a mental health issue, 
Law enforcement doesn't know how to handle that. And a lot of times these people end up getting arrested or hurt, right? Because they don't know how to mm. defuse the situation. You have a mental health professional come out and assess the situation. It'll be a lot more productive, right? And so I just think that there needs to be more discussion. I think that this whole situation is putting it to light. Um, mm. And I think people need to get more creative with the ways they combat crime and not just, you know, arrest people. Um, yeah. So, um, today I watched the, uh, have you seen the Netflix documentary 13th? I have not. I need to watch more TV, it's, huh? It's, it's really interesting because they talk about how, well, what I got from it, one of the major reasons why, uh, the, the reason, the ways that our society is systemically oppressing black people is the prison system. Uh, and I'm sure you're v- way more familiar about all that than I am. But with private prisons and prisons being able to, you know, pretty much put their prisoners into forced labor, um, there's financial incentive to have your prisons full of, you know, able-bodied workers. Oh, yeah. And so I could, I, I, could, I yeah. could go into that for an hour and talk to you about what that's like, but... Uh, I'll spare you of that de- of those details, but I mean, it is the prison system in America is it's terrible. It's it's really yeah. terrible. How, how can you have private organizations and private corporations running prisons when I mean, right? Yeah. So I think one of the the remedies could be to get rid of private prisons, right? And I think. That will drive down the incentive for police departments to arrest people and fill those prisons, right? I, so that sounds like a good plan to me. I, completely defunding the police department, from what little knowledge I have, my perspective, my initial reaction is that doesn't sound good because you have to first uh, do the preventive measures. And then after a certain amount of time, maybe then you can defund, you know, police officers or whatever the, you know, the idea is. But if the problems are still out there and then you defund the, the, the police officer or the police departments now, then in that overlay, overlaying gap of not having really prevented anything and having defunded the police, I feel like crime rates would go up like drastically. Yeah. You have to really plan for that. You have to have a very specific goal-oriented plan that that accomplishes what you're trying to do. You can't just... Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and not to mention, like, all of this hinges on the hypothesis that if, you know, people are... You know, whatever the preventive measures are, that they would work, right? Like, if you solve hunger, maybe people won't commit crime. Like, it's it all hinges on... On, on those hypotheses and to kind of put all your eggs in that basket and then go ahead and defund police departments that could really blow up in your face too yeah. if that actually wasn't the solution you know maybe there are people out there who are just genuinely out to cause trouble who who, who are genuinely greedy and they want to rob people or who are you know just super violent and they get off on you know beating people up and things like that that you can't possibly prevent you know, so like, obviously, I don't know everything. And, you know, maybe there are studies out there that say that there are ways to prevent those effectively. Um, I, and so, yeah, but I, I just think I agree with what you were saying. If we were going to defund the police uh, departments, there definitely needs to be a lot of planning and a, a lot of thought and a lot of studies to justify that. Because I honestly, I sleep well at night knowing that the cops are there for me to call if, you know, someone tried to harm me or my family. Yeah. Right. And I think... I would not... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, go ahead, David. Sorry. And I, I was just going to say, and I would not feel safe going to sleep. I would have, like, barricade my house if I have to go to sleep knowing that there are no police officers out there to, you know, keep law and order. Yeah. I think, I think part of the issue, if you really peel back the onion... And try to go back to what, like, what, what are we really talking about? What are we really trying to fight against, right? Mm. And 
I think if you go back enough layers, you're just really fighting about the less than pretty side of humanity, which is that, you know, we're imperfect people and we hurt each other. And that's who we are down, you know, and I know that's kind of cynical, but at the, at the same time, I don't think it's, I think we have to acknowledge that it's there if we're going to ever try to overcome it and to, yeah. to try to rise up above it. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement talks, focuses a lot about race. I do think it's, I do think it's a racial issue. It absolutely is a racial issue, but yeah. at the same time, why are people, why do people cause people of the other, you know, of different ethnicities pain? You know, it goes back to the fact that, you know, people just, humanity itself has this part of them that's not so pleasant, right? And that's always been there. And so, you know, it's it's hard. It, this situ- it's, there's no easy answer here. You're trying to solve that, right? If, yeah, if you're trying to sure. create an ideal world and bridge that from the world we live in now, it's tough, you know, because we just, it's, to get there means you have to overcome this part of human humanity, which, you know, apart from, I don't think anyone in society has lived a perfect life, <laughs> right? Um, mm. Minus, you know, one biblical person. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's, it's just tough, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I think, though, um, the fact that we're having this dialogue and conversation, I think is good um, to know kind of what police officers go through. Like the, the unnecessary stress that the good ones go through and also some of the laws in place that protect the bad ones, right? I think knowing all of that is very important um, in making, you know, informed decisions, whether you're voting or you're at, you're calling your, you know, the congressmen or mayors or whatever to, you know, ask for change. We have to know what the issues are in order to ask for a change to happen. Yeah, so, and, I, I'm, mm-hmm. it, and I think... If there's anything that can be taken away from this conversation, it's it's that if you want to effectuate change and 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 help this situation, um, whoever's listening to this, the best way to do that is to vote. I mean, it's not to to mm. pillage and loot. And and I know that sounds very boilerplate. That sounds very you know standardized, but. The way that I don't mean by voting for your president, I don't mean I mean that that certainly will help, but I mean go out and, and vote for your local elections, right? Because you can vote for your congressman, you can vote for your council people, you can vote for your district attorney, you can vote for all these people who are going to put in place the people who elect the police officers in your city, or I'm sorry, the people that will hire the, the police officers in your city, the ones that will make the policies and procedures that these police officers will have to follow. If you in, if you participate in government at the local level, you will play a role in in you know. If you had picked a different DA, right, than the one that exists in in um, in Brunswick County, who didn't want to pursue charges against those people that murdered um, Ahmad Arbery, right, then you would have right. change there, right? I mean, you can control that. The people you have to understand the the amount of voters that show up for these things is very small. Right, so these people are winning with a couple handful, ten thousand votes or so, are, are winning, are are being put in these positions of power. But a lot, a lot of what gets overlooked is participating in elections at the local level and voting for the district attorney, you know, the the chief of police, things like that. You know, researching and seeing their character and seeing if these people, you know, ought to be there, because, you know, a lot of people, most people don't think about that, right? And so if you do that. I think that is a very simple and easy way to immediately start affecting some change. You know, do some homework and go out and participate in the, your local elections. Nobody does. I mean, I don't know many of my friends who will do, you know, spend maybe 30 minutes or an hour of their day just doing a little bit of research on who the, their local politicians are um, mm. and seeing how that might affect them. Because, I mean, doing government law and understanding how the system works and how, you know, who their bosses are ultimately you know the, the democracy we shouldn't be fearful of the, of the prince the president or or the you know of the police or anybody we we should the people should be you know fearful of no one because the people running the show are us right so yeah um 
but that's been lost a little bit and people don't really tend to vote in the local stuff mm-hmm. and so it's you know it's whoever it's, campaigns the most and spends the most money to run a few ads wins um right but i did see you know barack obama mentioned that too in a post he made to participate because really that's it'll have an effect i know it will because I, I see it yeah and, and that reminds me of a quote from the movie v for vendetta where the guy where v says um people shouldn't be afraid of their government government should be afraid of their people and i think we need to realize that our, our votes have power um not o- not only should you vote you should all you also fill out your census form I, I think it's still not too late to do that fill out your census so that people the government knows you know where you are well not you specifically but how many of you are in certain locations and that affects funding so uh i just wanted to throw that out there and you know um i just want to go back and address something i just said earlier where i said i feel comfortable sleeping knowing that there's police out there protecting me and i i feel like that's a little insensitive um because i just realized that what happened to brianna taylor is she was home she wasn't doing anything wrong and she still got shot by police officers yeah so that um i i will I, I mean i do have to acknowledge that um there are again cops out there that are just ill-equipped to do the job that they're doing um and not, that's not the case for all police officers but yeah i will acknowledge that yeah I do have privilege um, because I am Asian American. I'm privileged enough to uh, go to sleep without the fear that police officers will come busting into my house, uh, like with the guns locked and loaded. So yeah, more qualifications, um, David. We need more. We need more mm-hmm. rigorous qualifications on who gets to be an officer. We need more police chiefs to enforce them. And set an example to the, all the officers that work in their precinct to be better. Therefore, we need yeah. to pick good leaders, a.k.a. good police chiefs, who are going to trickle down into the department. Um, and that'll help. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, all everything we're talking about, I think, kind of boils down to if you want to do something about what we talked about, you should vote. You should go do research. And... Police chiefs are an elected position as well, right? Or are they hired? No, they're they're they they're an elected position. Okay, yeah, right. So you can literally, you know, vote for um, who who is the police chief. So um, yeah, I, I strongly advocate that everyone listening, um, I guess, not go out and vote because of the coronavirus. But um, you know, with all the mail-in voting um, that's available available to us now. Uh, don't miss the chance to vote this time around. Yeah, I definitely advocate for that. It's um, it's cliche, but it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, we're at an hour mark, Chris. Um, and I, I don't mind keeping this going and going way over. But I wanted to ask you: is there is there anything uh, that you wanted to cover or talk about that we didn't we haven't gotten to yet? Um. Not necessarily. I think I think we talked about all the um, relevant stuff. The I mean, the only other thing I would point out is just to to know your rights as a citizen. Um, right. Yeah. It's important to know your rights. And if anybody wants to contact me about that personally, I'm happy to share my knowledge I have about what rights you have. But at the same time, I see too many videos people like trying to hang on to their rights and like and use it to justify their equally questionable conduct, you know, like they'll get in a conversation with an officer and say, I know my rights. I know my rights and act almost belligerent because they say they know their rights. And I'd say, look, if both people on both sides just treated each other with respect, you know, it would help, you know? Yeah. Not, not, I mean, in in situations like the Breonna Taylor or the uh, George Floyd, I mean, no amount of respect might have stopped that problem, but I'm saying for like the more routine encounter, um, mm. it might help. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so yeah, guys, if any of what we talked about, um, if, if you have any feedback um, or if you have any questions, 
please feel free to reach out to me at ihthcpodcast at gmail.com um, or reach out on Instagram at I hope to hear this or on Twitter at ihthcpodcast. And whatever questions you have to or you want to ask Chris uh, specifically, I will more than happily forward any messages. So please uh, feel free to send me any messages. And Chris, man, I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation today. Uh, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your insight and knowledge because, yeah, it's, I, I learned so many new things today uh, about kind of how things work. So it's, it was super informative, and uh, I think it is definitely going to inform the way that I vote. So, so thank you. No problem, David. Yeah, uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure, and I hope that um, it, it will inspire at least one person to think about the way that their vote will affect um, the world they live in down to, you know, their specific neighborhoods rather than just like the, mm. you know, generalized presidency. Yeah. Well, yeah, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.